there, good day everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you. It's a new year, a new time to look forward. It's been a terrible start of the year for me, so for the moment I'm just taking it easy and bringing you some memories of Australia. We'll be back really soon with all of the usual suspects. 1st of all, I want to thank everyone in Australia for getting rid of that dreadful Morrison and his government last year. That is something well done, and I give you well-earned praise and much gratitude. There were a few happy notes like that last year, not the least of which, of course, is the happy news that George Pell is no longer with us. But let me leave those nasty bits for a moment, and I'd like to let the listeners know that this year we lost Andy Wiltshire from the BLF. Andy, he was a fixture around the place. He was part of the landscape. Gone south. Catch you later, Andy. And I should tell you that Solidarity Salon has moved. Gosh, I used to go there when it was in Pasco Vale South. Then it moved to West Brunswick. And now it's moved to Reservoir. But I'll let them tell you. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, I don't know about you, listener, but over the years I have actually picked up a couple of things that fell off the back of a truck. Maybe you have too. I'm not going to tell you what I've got. As I said, over the years, odd pieces here and there, but one thing I have never got that fell off the back of a truck is a little, tiny, little radioactive capsule. On the 25th of January, Rio Tinto reported that one of their Kaisium-137 radioactive capsules had gone missing. Well, how do you find it? It's smaller than a 10-cent coin. Somewhere along a 1,400-kilometre track from the Gudai Dari mine down to just north of Perth city centre. So authorities had specialist search crews out looking for it. And with firefighters amongst them, 
though how firefighters are going to find a tiny capsule, well, that was beyond me. But of course, nuclear science specialists were called in too. But what happened? I can't believe this. The capsule fell off a radiation gauge that was being transported from the mine to Perth. Vibrations during transit, oh, maybe it's a rough road. But the vibrations made the little thing fall off and then blow me down. There was a hole in the floor of the truck where a bolt had come loose and the little capsule fell through. Now the point is, nobody notified the public for two days while they were searching around the place in Perth and around the mine site up in Newman. It wasn't until the 27th of January that a health warning was issued to notify the public about the risk. This little capsule emits both beta rays and gamma rays. If you're close to it, you get really bad skin damage, bad burns, a little bit longer exposure, and you're dead. Strange enough, they actually found the damn thing. They're not going to tell us where exactly they found it, and I'm concerned that there may have been people living there, but then again, people who live about 200 kilometres from the mine site in northwestern Australia... What kind of people live there? You know exactly who I'm talking about, listener. What I also found particularly interesting is that a surprisingly large number of these sources get lost and never get found. I wonder whether charges will be laid against Rio Tinto. I wouldn't want to be the truck driver. Yeah.
Catatonics with Lindsay Sterling and Radioactive. And I still think the story's pretty sus. It was in my truck and somewhere along the way it fell out. There just happened to be a little hole in the floor of my truck. Yeah, well, I'm sure some people would believe that. But then again... 3CR There's a bit of drama going on with the Greens, isn't there? First of all, in Yarra City Council, where I live, their longest-serving member, Amanda Stone, has quit the party. And that's after her colleagues restricted public access to council meetings. And apart from her, Lydia Thorpe has left the Greens. And she said, it has become clear to me that I can't speak truth from within the Greens. Now I can speak freely on all issues from a sovereign perspective without being constrained by agreed party positions. All the best to you, Amanda and Lydia. Stand up for what you believe in. That's the way to go. And now the seemingly endless saga of robo-debt. The more we find out, the more nauseating it becomes. We'll find you. We'll track you down. You'll have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. And this is all to give the jollies to those bullying sociopaths who run the Liberal Party so they can say stuff like that and feel all tough and butch. Have you been keeping up with the robo-debt Royal Commission? It's been fascinating and really quite funny if it didn't make you feel so sick. The most powerful bureaucrat with direct involvement in this scandalous policy is Catherine Campbell and it revealed an even uglier truth behind its introduction. In a packed field of Liberal National Party despicables, inexplicables and just plain horribles, Campbell oozes her charmless self towards the front of the pack. Rarely has a bulb so dim shone so much light on all that was malignant about the last nine years of misrule. Although no findings have yet been made, we're getting close to the end, I reckon, listener. And it's been very clear that this welfare debt scheme is, at its very least, the result of a catastrophic multi-system failure within the Australian Public Service, which designed, incubated, sold and then covered up a fatal flaw so obvious that every Centrelink frontline worker, who earned 13 times less than the secretary, was warned about it during routine inductions. Campbell says she never read the Social Security Act. No, she's never read it, despite her work at both the Department of Human Services and the Department of Social Services. Had she read it, she would know that it made quite clear Welfare entitlements should be assessed only on income earned in any fortnight and that income was rarely the same fortnight to fortnight. This reveals the inescapable issue with robo-debt 
its architects decided to use an algorithm to essentially guess debts at an enormous scale and without any human oversight by matching annual income collected by the tax office against fortnightly income declared by benefit recipients. And as for Morrison, oh, aren't we glad he's gone? His words in answer to the gently phrased inquiries put to him it just couldn't help but be dripping with haughty and surly condescension. Morrison, a zero intellect, as lowbrow as a squashed wheat mix, has trained himself to present as something like the old Queen Mother, a Duchess of the Shire, minus the charm or polished voice, a bad actor with lousy diction attempting to channel some school play version of Lady Bracknell. Look, there are lies, damned lies, and every word Scott Morrison has ever uttered. Remember that in 2016, robo-debt was Morrison's scheme which he ran from the front, citing waste and abuse of the system, which he claimed was running amok among a shady gang of wasters and abusers whom only he, as the tough welfare cop on the beat, only he could rein in and punish. The hammer he boasted at the time he would use to crush these deviant enemies of the taxpayer was an illegal mechanism which he now claims he knew very little about. And despite clear evidence from 2016, he says he had no real interest in. Of course, in reality, the phantom subversives that Morrison conjured up and threw onto the racks and triangles of the cheap, gaudy yellow press for the ugly, slavering mob to pelt with hate and derision. These phantoms of versives were the poor, the disabled, the disadvantaged, all of whom were innocent of any wrongdoing. Some of the targets at Morrison's 2016 fake crusade died as a result. So devastated were they by the false accusations hurled at them with the full force of the state, a mechanised, heartless bureaucracy and the cold demands of the law that they took their own lives. The excuse he gave in evidence was to blame public servants who, he claims, didn't inform him. If they had, he boasted, minus any evidence, if they had, Robodeck wouldn't have happened. But he was distracted by bushfires and lots of other stuff that only he could understand. Seriously, of all the galling moments in Morrison's robo-debt testimony, using the 2019 bushfires as an excuse for why his attention might have been elsewhere, would have to top the list. There were so many Morrison-generated lies and shockers zinging by, but bushfires as excuse for robo-debt sent up a large red flag. I think Mr Gregory, the Commissioner, or someone in the room let out a loud gasp of disbelief when he said it. Or maybe that was me. Or maybe it was the entire country. Well, he was distracted from leading at all by the pina colada 
and the soft plash of waves on that distant shore. To be fair, it was all Jen's fault, wasn't it? She and the girls had been demanding a Hawaii trip, he claimed. He didn't want to disappoint them, he said at the time. After being forced to return after waves, this time a public outrage. Of course, there was another consideration. He and Jen's great friends, QAnon conspiracy crank Tim Stewart and his wife Linnell, the woman who had been paid to mind Jen at Kirribilli House, arrived in Hawaii the week after Morrison left. The couples had intended to catch up, it seems, away from the nosy media. Yes, well, the nosy media. Indeed, this RoboDebt Royal Commission is revealing more and more information about this illegal scheme. And it's quite damaging to the reputation of Scott Morrison and to the Liberal Party. And it might lead, hopefully, to more than just damage to reputation. Look, in any case, the Royal Commission will run its course and will find out whatever it needs to find out. But one curious issue, dear listener, is the coverage of the Royal Commission in the media. We're talking about illegality committed by a government and it ultimately costs taxpayers $1.8 billion in compensation payments. But the home pages of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Herald Sun and the Courier Mail have no material about the Royal Commission. There has been a few sentences, very scarce reporting. The ABC has given some coverage, most of the reporting coming from The Guardian. In comparison to the Royal Commission into trade unions and into the Pink Bats insulation schemes, which had blanket media coverage, there's not much interest at all from those bastions of free speech, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Herald Sun and The Courier Mail. And while I'm on the subject of how inept the mainstream media is in Australia, The Herald Sun has excelled again in its attacks on the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews. And it's still running with a story about a car accident with a cyclist from nine years ago. But of course, it still has got some recent history where it's regurgitated a story from 12 months ago when Andrews fell down a flight of stairs and made it seem like something untoward was going on. Look, Kevin Rudd did call for a Royal Commission into media concentration. And while the Labour government is busy with quite a few other things, like fixing up the economy, wages growth, industrial relations, climate change, and of course corruption, it will have to do something about News Corporation because it's an out-of-control media organisation, out of control, and it's a menace to our society. Just how did Rupert Murdoch get to this point to be the big media baron that he is today? I keep waiting, looking at the news, waiting to hear of his demise How old is the old bugger anyway? Let's hear from the BBC. Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of 
formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia. Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. In 1968, Rupert Murdoch arrived in London to negotiate the purchase of the News of the World, seeing off his only real rival, Robert Maxwell. And within a year, he'd acquired, and shortly after, relaunched The Sun. Murdoch was here to stay, and he was determined to alter the character of British journalism. Few would doubt that Murdoch is a newspaper man. It's in his blood. His father, Keith Murdoch, was a war correspondent, and following his death in 1952... The 21-year-old Rupert left his sub-editor's job at the Daily Express in London to run the family business back in Australia. So began a pattern for Murdoch's career. Hostile takeovers, a rapid expansion, bold risk-taking and a hands-on approach to running his business. You don't delegate very well, I'm told. You take decisions at a very minor level, deciding what programme should go on a television service, this sort of stuff. I delegate enormously, I have to. There aren't enough hours in the day to run everything. Um, I delegate everything. But when I'm around, I interfere a bit too much. It didn't take Murdoch long to make himself an enemy of the British establishment, printing gospel stories and notoriously digging up ten-year-old dirt with the publication of Christine Keeler's diaries in 1972. But circulation figures of both his UK titles were promising, and the very nature of the popular press seemed to be evolving under his direction. Let's see what's happening in The Star this week. First, Glenn and Sarah Campbell talk about his unreleased record, Sarah's Song, and The Star prints all its lyrics for you. Then the latest on Kojak, King Kong's girlfriend, Clark Gable's son, and Rosalind Carter's second-hand inaugural gown. In 1973, Murdoch left Britain, turning his attention to the United States. He soon founded the supermarket tabloid The Star, and later purchased the New York Post. But at the start of the 1980s, perhaps sensing a natural political ally in the newly elected Margaret Thatcher, Murdoch returned to Britain, to launch a bid for the ailing Times and Sunday Times. I don't believe that the people who read the Times are any better than the people who read the Sun. I just believe they're different. But do you... I'm very proud of the Sun. On the face of it, this is the establishment's worst nightmare. One of the pillars of British conservatism, run by a man known only for his populist approach. But the alternative was the very real prospect of the Times and Sunday Times falling out of business completely. Obviously, you will wonder what my plans are for the papers. Whatever proposals for progress may be developed, there will be no fundamental change in the characteristics. I am not seeking to acquire these papers in order to change them into something entirely different. Having successfully altered the character of the popular press in Britain, Murdoch set his sights on the industry itself, instigating an audacious shift from his printing plant in Fleet Street to a state-of-the-art facility in Wapping in East London. The new plant was built and developed under a shroud of secrecy and fired into operation when a Fleet Street strike was called in January 1986. Redundancy notices on the printers were served and the so-called Battle of Wapping began. The Wapping dispute has produced some of the worst scenes of violence since the miners' strike. Hundreds of demonstrators and policemen have been injured as, each Saturday, the streets around the plant are turned into a battleground. This is industrial relations, Rupert Murdoch style, but it has great implications for all groups of workers. The strike lasted a year, and the fallout broke the back of the Fleet Street trade unions, who were forced to fall into line with Murdoch's working practices and relocate. But by this time, Murdoch had already moved on, setting his sights firmly on the advent of satellite television. By the end of the 1980s, Murdoch had the bit between his teeth. He purchased 20th Century Fox in America in 1984 and launched the Fox Broadcasting Company the following year. His plans for satellite broadcasting in Britain, meanwhile, had the media establishment reeling. 
what I uh, get quite angry about with him and his newspapers is the way they continually knock what has gone before, and there was more of that today. He dismissed drama and sport and comedy. Sky's losses nearly bankrupted him, and he was forced to merge with British Satellite Broadcasting to form B Sky B. B Sky B then staked everything on the newly formed Football Premier League. This bold and ultimately successful move coincided with a shift in thinking in the Labour Party. They were about to concede a good deal of ground to make themselves electable. Old Labour became new Labour. Tony Blair paid court to Rupert Murdoch. And for the first time in decades, Murdoch titles began giving their backing to the Labour Party. Mr Murdoch, how would you describe your relationship with Tony Blair? I'm a supporter. Rupert Murdoch has always maintained he does not subscribe to one political ideology, but his free market, anti-union, anti-establishment and pro-consumer choice stance places him firmly in the party of individual interest. He's cunning, ruthless, single-minded, perhaps even brilliant, but he's also ageing. As the 90s became the noughties, Murdoch finally began to open the door to his potential successors. First his eldest son, Lachlan, then younger son, James. You're familiar with the word mafia? Yes, Mr Watson. Mr Murdoch, you must be the first mafia boss in history who didn't know he was running a criminal enterprise. Mr Watson, please. I think that's inappropriate. Mr Chairman. So what have we seen with the revelations of phone hacking? An organisation with a swollen sense of power and entitlement that has allowed itself to disregard any sense of moral responsibility? The anti-establishment establishment thinks it can do what it wants? Or just an overpowerful company left to graze by its ageing monarch, overreaching and let down by successors charged with its care? The Leveson inquiry and the scandal of phone hacking will rumble on, as will News Corporation. The question on Wednesday is whether this is the moment that Rupert Murdoch finds a way to start a fight back. As for my comments, Mr Chairman, and my statement, which I believe was around the closure uh, of the News of the World newspaper. Before you get to that, I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. Uh, good morning. You're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. And now, dear listener, I'm going to bring you some history, some memories of Australia. What shaped my life in the 60s and the lives of my friends and colleagues and comrades from that era was, of course, war, war in Vietnam. What on earth were we doing there? Why? Ah, dear, it sometimes just really gets me down. But anyway, let's have a look at it. Memories. Before I go on to the war in Vietnam, Let's have a little piece of poetry from Comrade Natasha about the road down to Ocean Grove, the Anzac Highway. History. The biggest war memorial in the world, the Anzacs Highway, now cast in bronze plaques along the tourist track, was the labour of 13 years by 3,000 soldiers and sailors who laid the foundations of peace in a stone and mortar monument to those fallen on the fields. 
I look at men looking back at me from nearly 80 years gone past, in black and white, leaning on picks and shovels, in hats, shirts, vests, jackets, boots, tiered along the eastern view, ready to break the back of the mountain, girding a link along the shipwrecked coast in brawn and sweat, sheer sweat and muscle. Three, tourist trail. At Wire River, rubber-necked and sharp fin shadows line the surf line. Paddling out before the winter chill for thrills snatched from the seaside. Looking out from Mount Defiance, thinking on the hard labour of those who cleared the way in the face of perpendicular cliffs, now sealed in black and white barriers, slow turnouts, sign-posted reflections past mileposts, now yellow kilometres per hour, and hairpins round each bend. Rocks greet the sea, lapping, belting, cracking, belching, crashing upon the land, as though the whole earth was tipped up. Johnson had a button nose when first he went to Congress. Now it's long and crooked like a politician's promise. tries every way to make our country prosperous. He fights rural poverty with CBUs and phosphorus. To do some extra tying So he calls on Uncle Roy To keep the colors flying Hey, hey, LBJ How many kids we killed today? We're gonna take your toys away And bring our soldiers home now LBJ works night and day Each target's his decision He bombs friendly villagers With surgical precision With Ruther, Morse, and Meany Strikes to break and bribes to take to grease the war machinery Protest movements in Australia resulted from dramatic shifts in public opinion on contentious issues and as a response to how governments of that time dealt with shifting opinions. The 1970s saw an increase in rights movements 
as people's opinions on important social and political matters began to change. There were debates over how Australia approached war from the early 20th century on, but none of them achieved the widespread scale of protests against the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War began as a civil war between North Vietnam and South Vietnam, but it was representative of the wider Cold War between USA and the Soviet Union. Australia's involvement in this conflict began in 1962, with the addition of armed forces coming later, and reinforced through the introduction of conscription in 1965. There were small protests against conscription in the 1960s, however the intensity of protest action and the shift in public opinion came as people were informed of the true nature of this war. With the advent of television in most households, detailed reports on war activities were much more accessible than in past conflicts when information was available at cinemas and in newspapers, and even then was heavily censored. Reports about the effects of the war on Vietnamese civilians, including the use of chemical agents like Agent Orange, contributed to this shifting opinion. But for many, reports of the My Lai massacre in 1969 completely erased any moral justification for participation in this war. 3CR. What was Australia doing in Vietnam? In July of 1967, US President Lyndon B. Johnson sent two of his principal advisers, Clark Clifford and General Maxwell Taylor, to Australia and to New Zealand with an urgent mission. Back in USA, protests were raging in streets and on university campuses. Hawks and doves were battling in Washington. Defence Secretary Robert McNamara was heading towards resignation, an admission that his Vietnam policy had failed. Amid this turmoil, General Westmoreland was demanding a substantial escalation in American troop numbers, around 400,000 at the start of the year. To get any increase out of a highly critical Congress, Johnson had to show that American allies, especially Australia and New Zealand, that they were paying their own way, that they were prepared to increase their commitments. As Clifford told the New Zealand government, one additional New Zealand soldier produces 50 American soldiers. The prospects for this Clifford-Taylor mission looked pretty good in Australia, where the Conservative government had been outspokenly hawkish. When American officials first indicated in 1964 that the administration was considering sending combat forces to Vietnam and that an Australian contribution would be welcome, they seemed to have in mind a modest increase to the advisory team of 83 soldiers already in South Vietnam. Instead, Robert Menzies sent a battalion of 800 troops, although their role was far from clear. 
As Menzies saw it, the risk in American policy was not strategic overreach, but isolationism and what that would mean for Australia and its neighbours. The crucial step to Menzies was to ensure American commitment. Once that was achieved, any victory would be certain. Australia's forward defence strategy after 1945 was to make small military commitments in order to keep Britain and the USA, which Menzies called our great and powerful friends, committed to Southeast Asia. He believed in the domino theory, and he told Australians all about the domino theory. Oh, you tell me that there's danger to this land you call your own. And you watch them build the war machines right beside your home. And you tell me that you're ready to go marching to the war. Oh, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Before you pack your rifle and sail across the sea, just think upon the southern part of land that you call free. Oh, there's many kinds of slavery, and we found many more. Yes, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? And before you walk out on your job and answer to the call, just think about the millions who have no job at all. And the men who wait for handouts with their eyes upon the floor. I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Turn on your TV, turn it on so loud. And watch the fool is smiling there and tell me that you're proud. And listen to your radio, the noise it starts to pour. Oh, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Read your morning papers, read every single line And tell me if you can believe that simple world you find Read every slanted word till your eyes are getting sore I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Unlisten to your leaders, the ones that won the race As they stand right there before you and lie into your face if you ever try to buy them, you know what they stand for. I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Put a ragged clothes upon your back and sleep upon the ground. And tell police about your rights as they drag you down. And ask them as they lead you to some deserted door. Yes, I know you're set for fighting. But what are you fighting for? But the hardest thing I'll ask you If you will only try Is take your children by their hands And look into their eyes And there you'll see the answer You should have seen before If you'll win the wars at home There'll be no fighting anymore Our young men were conscripted in Australia. Conscripted. They were aged 20 
and too young to vote. Back then, you had to be 21 years old before you could get a vote. So, too young to vote, but old enough to go and fight in a war for USA. It all went through a big barrel lottery. This is a short news clip of an actual lottery taking place. This barrel held the immediate future for 40,300 young Australians who have registered for national service since January the 25th. It will continue to hold the immediate future for all young Australians who reach the age of 20 while the government continues its present policy of national service training by ballot. Inside here today were 181 marbles representing birthdays. 96 were drawn to provide a nucleus of 4,200 young men for training this year after exemptions and deferments have been decided upon. Uh, these young men, the 4,200, will be drafted in two intakes. The first draft, which will be on June the 30th this year, will send 1,350 young men to Puckapunyal in Victoria and 750 to Kapuka in New South Wales for recruit training before they're drafted to regular army units to complete their two years service. The plan, which was announced last November in view of the deteriorating strategic situation, aims eventually at providing a constant strength of 13,800 young national servicemen in Australia's military forces. Oh, Sergeant, I'm a draftee and I've just arrived in camp. I've come to wear the uniform and join the martial tramp. And I want to do my duty, but one thing I do implore You must give me lessons, Sergeant, for I've never killed before To do my job obediently is my only desire To learn my weapon thoroughly and how to aim and fire To learn to kill the enemy and then to slaughter more I'll need instruction, Sergeant, for I've never killed before now there are rumors in the camp about our enemy They say that when you see him he looks just like you and me But you deny it, Sergeant, and you are a man of war So you must give me lessons, for I've never killed before Now there are several lessons that I haven't mastered yet I haven't got the hang of how to use the bayonet if he doesn't die at once, am I to stick him with it more? Oh, I hope you will be patient, for I've never killed before. And the hand grenade is something that I just don't understand. You've got to throw it quickly, or you're apt to lose your hand. Does it blow a man to pieces with its wicked muffled roar? I've got so much to learn, because I've never killed before. Well, I want to thank you, Sergeant, for the help you've been to me. You've taught me how to kill and how to hate the enemy. And I know that I'll be ready when they march me off to war. And I know that it won't matter that I've never killed before. I know that it won't matter that I've never killed before. And I can't talk about 
Vietnam War in Australia without mentioning the Fairly Five. What a catchy name, the Fairly Five. The year was 1965. The Menzies government had introduced Australian conscription and mothers were outraged for the lives of their sons. To be a conscientious objector was to condemn yourself to being ostracised. To be a woman protesting the war was to be a scandal against womanly behaviour. Five brave women spoke out against the injustice of conscription. Jean McLean, Joan Coxidge, Irene Miller, Chris Cathy and Joe McLean Cross. They were arrested in May of 1971 for handing out anti-conscription pamphlets of government property. These women were part of the anti-conscription, anti-war movement, Save Our Sons. It was a peaceful movement created to protest against the war and to protest conscription. They achieved their goals through many peaceful activities, including demonstrations, candlelight vigils, letters to politicians, and handing out anti-conscription leaflets. The Fairley Five were named for their 14-day prison sentence in Melbourne's Fairley Prison after being the first civilians charged by the Summary Offences Act of 1971. The Act aimed to limit the rights of protesters, including acts of obstruction. The Fairley Five went to the Department of Labour and National Service to inform these boys about the Vietnam War and the right to be conscientious objectors. They were allowed to distribute their leaflets until one young man spoke to them and then decided against enlisting. The Fairley Five refused to leave and were eventually arrested by police and informed that they would be required to attend court for willfully trespassing on government property. They were brought before a judge and sentenced to 14 days in Fairley Prison without any possibility of paying a fine. Now this jail sentence was shocking news to the Australian public. The harsh punishment promoted hype in the media and helped promote the Save Our Sons cause. After a lot of media attention, the women were offered an appeal. However, they were determined to stay the full prison term. Not only did the jailing of these women inspire a vigil outside the prison, people deliberately trespassed in public areas to show solidarity. Clergy preached about women's bravery, workers embargoed docks, and newspapers continued to support these five women. Their imprisonment inspired people to take action, to stand against authority on principle. The actions of these women showed the fierce determination that they had for their cause, and they reflect the type of actions and ideologies that were involved in Save Our Sons. The media wanted mercy for mothers, but the Fairly Five rejected this as an act of opposing government law. If they had left prison on the basis of being mothers, their cause would have been weakened. If the gender roles had been reversed, a father would not have been offered an appeal based on being a father. Good on you, Fairly Five. We don't forget you.
Over 60,000 Australians served in Vietnam. 523 died as a result, and more than 2,500 were wounded. The war was the cause of the greatest social and political dissent in Australia since the conscription referendums of the First World War. The Vietnam War continues to cast a long shadow over a generation of Australian servicemen and servicewomen well after the war's over. Five decades after their service in Vietnam, many veterans live with the enduring impacts of that conflict. Wars have always had a lasting effect on the lives of those who fought them, but rarely, if ever, have the legacies of war been the subject of such public debate as with Vietnam. The rejection of veterans on their return, the endless debate about the impacts of the dreadful Agent Orange, and the slow but growing understanding of PTSD, originally called post-Vietnam syndrome. But all of these contributed to making the post-war experiences of Vietnam veterans very different from those of veterans of Australia's earlier wars. Captain Collier, he cried, well, what the hell have I been fighting for? Oh, soldier, it's for you. We want to bring you home. We want to hold you in our arms. Come back and keep us warm. PFC Manny Stein had been drafted and gone. He'd been told that only cowards would say no. He came home and called some old friends. They'd resisted the draft, and they both were in prison. And their wives and their kids were all skinny and having a bad time. And P.F.C. Stein, he remembered the men called political prisoners. You know where and when. Lines are tapped all the time now, and he's wondering if maybe his bravery's needed at home now. Yes, soldier, we're afraid. We're not just being fools. We're gassed and beaten here at home. We've got to change the rules. Corporal Thomas McCann. As a three-year Marine Someone told him he'd better join up It would make him a man He came home and to the park he went And he sat down on a bench And a dungaree girl told him He'd been a man all along 
at the sign that she carried in her hand. It said, fuck the war and bring our brothers home. And Corporal McCann, he looks into her eyes. And I believe that he's begun to understand now. Support us here, come back and lend an eye. Hey, bring our brothers home. 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 Hey, bring our brothers Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode of Left After Breakfast. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you same time, same place next week. And until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.